Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I talk to some amazing disabled people and some amazing allies of the disabled community. Today, I'm talking to Zoe Portlock. Zoe is the Senior Accessibility User Experience Designer at a massive FTSE 100 company. If you don't know what that is, don't worry, you soon will. I'm not 100% clear on it either, but I do know that I'm very excited to be talking to Zoe today about all things accessibility related. Unapologetically, ruthlessly advocate constantly. Um, (laughs) Often people haven't heard of of, um, many sides of things we, we deal with day to day until someone is in front of them telling them their lived experience. I now have several millions in budget. I have a director sponsor. Um, I'm getting a team very soon. We changed the font, the entire brand's font, um, because it wasn't very accessible. Um, I've done all kinds of stuff, you know, we redid a lot of the brand foundations to, to really center around accessibility. I just want every piece of our content to be equally consumable by anyone that could read it, you know? And it it might seem like a small number of people, but it's really, really not. Zoe, thank you so, so much for joining us on The Wheelchair Activist. Thank you for having me. No, my my pleasure. um, You've been someone on my radar for a while to have on, but I think it's also very important to acknowledge that our first sort of interaction was um you auditing my website for accessibility so i am super super grateful for you doing that um and yeah can you tell our wonderful listeners a little bit about you and what you do absolutely hi i'm zoe zoe portlock i'm both a disabled person and an accessibility expert lead so i have a range of my my own needs going on. Um, I'm very neurodiverse. I tick a lot of the boxes. So I'm autistic, dyslexic, dyspraxic, and have Erlen syndrome. Um, so I have my glasses tinted purple and all of my screens are purple. Um, so I, I tick a lot of those boxes, very neurodiverse. Um, and I also have a range of chronic illnesses too. So I have fibromyalgia, ME slash CFS, uh, hypermobile endless endless syndrome. Um, I have chronic migraine from a head injury, a few in like 2015 so a lot to to balance and juggle um but I think that it is really valuable in what I do so I lead digital accessibility at a FTSE 100 financial services company um I essentially began that movement that's led into like a discipline a team and department essentially so it was just a, a very keen I think we could be doing this better and I was given the agency to to run with that and build what I wished and um yeah now it's it's very much built into the brand it's a big part of everything that goes out um and I love I love getting to talk about it and how those two things cross over together um too and like you said I did your website audit um occasionally I take on some freelance work so I've written a bunch of articles for scopes the big hack um thanks for commissioning that last one um and like I'm a bit active on Twitter and and saw you were tweeting about a new website and launching a podcast so just offered to have a look and give you some recommendations 
um, it's really nice to be on and be on like the other side of that now, like at the behind the scenes. Uh, no, I mean, it was so important to me, as everyone knows, that this podcast and my content and everything that I do is as accessible as possible. And so it was so important to me that before I properly launched that I did get it accessibility checked because it's not something that I am by any means an expert in, but I know little drips and drops. And so when I heard from you that you could do that service for me, I was just so excited um, Mm -hmm. that you were able to do it. And I really want to explore the world of finance with you and disability um, because it's not something that I've really had on the podcast before. And I think when you think about finance and sort of when you toss around terms like the FTSE 100, which I'm not going to lie, I only have a vague understanding of what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, it conjures up images of like Wolf of Wall Street and, you know, sort of like that type of industry where it moves so fast that how can disability be factored into that but what would you say is sort of the reality I mean you said that you got a lot of sort of agency to build accessibility into where you work and to really run with that but what would you say is the reality of disability in the financial sector good question big question um, I will quickly, the FTSE 100 thing, so it's the Financial Times Stock Exchange 100 Index. So it's basically like the the core 100. Keep an eye on these. We Yes, it's it's like a bit of a financial term, but tends to be known wider. Apologies. Uh, basically, uh, one of the UK's biggest investment platforms, I will say. Quite quite a big player. Uh, So I actually, I worked in finance briefly as a contractor. I worked for Lloyds Bank and um, that was supposed to be in an accessibility role, which I was so excited about. Um, But as a contractor, you kind of do what they give you. And I was put on to like business as usual, uh, campaigns and websites and such. So I I missed out then. And from that, I had this determination (laughs) that I will get to do this one day. I am going to do accessibility one day. Um, And in the the finance world, so some big organizations are great at it. They have been on it for a very, very long time um, and have made it a priority. But just like many, many other places out there, accessibility can cannot have made it into a priority not by any um like negative way not not intentionally it's just that you might not have had someone who conveniently is autistic and their special interest is digital accessibility and will burst in the door and be like let me do this I want to do this um so yeah I I was able to kind of pick that up and, and run with it it's it's not as uh, intensive as it might seem as an industry, I'd say. Um, I I will say that, especially in, in this role and other places I've worked, often you kind of become the, the internal <laughs> accessibility consultant as well. Um, when I joined this company, 
no one in HR had heard of access to work, which is a, you know, a government, for those listening at home, a government grant scheme uh, for adjustments that you need as a disabled person to get to and keep you in the workplace. So there has been a lot of teaching both in how to be accessible for your colleagues as well as your customers. Um, but yes, it's not quite as, as harsh as it seems. The reason I like working in banking in that realm is because there is investment into um, digital services. I'd work for smaller companies and they would have uh, one person running like three different specialties. So if you're in a smaller organization, you're doing a bit of everything. Whereas when you're in a bank, their digital teams, um, they really invest in it and when I first worked at Lloyd's, I found out about user experience designers, like a role that I I never heard of, was fascinated by. And four years down the line, that is essentially my role. I'm a accessibility specific user experience designer um, who also leads accessibility. So there, there's something in that, you know, it's the the depth of specialty you get to own and run with and train in. Um, is, is something special, I find. And it's it's definitely a big part of, of why I came back to financial services to be able to do this and not worry about um, handling other responsibilities, but really devote myself to accessibility. And I think it's it's been a good fit for sure. I think that there is a real benefit to working for larger and sometimes more profitable organizations I think Mm -hmm. when it comes to accessibility and inclusion because they are able to like you say they're able to invest in it and you know as difficult as that is and you know if you work for a smaller organization um, you know to not have the same resources I think it's really something to bear in mind I think a lot of people might assume that a big company wouldn't be at all interested in disability or accessibility because why should they um we could get on to the value of the purple pound and all of that Mm -hmm. good stuff but i think it's if you're thinking about it from an employment perspective when you work for a large organization they're able to put more money behind supporting you as an employee and then also their outward services towards disabled people i mean I, I think that that's really encouraging to hear that you've been given those opportunities and that you are in the role now. And yeah, it's it's so interesting that you're doing sort of the external and the internal stuff. Um, so I suppose before we get into all of the rest of what I want to talk to you about, I think... One thing I'm super interested to ask you, and I ask most of my guests this, but it's, what does disability mean to you? What a question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Very big question. I've thought about this, and I think for me, it's about making your own path in a society that wasn't built for you. Um, Creating your own normal, finding your community, and building your own life that is adapted and is designed to meet your needs. Um, you know, not necessarily a fit, but once you do build that, it's so special. Um, yeah, so so finding your community, 
wherever or whatever part of that community um is I mean I have a lot going on so um like neurodiversity specifically you know learning about the real lived experience of autism separating it from that clinical life of desperately waiting for a referral to understand yourself and and know where to where to go with what you're dealing with day to day um yeah just building your own normal really lifting up other disabled people where you can making the world a bit kinder for other disabled people in your organization that you're working with or um trying to speak out and have have a bit of a, a platform or just unapologetically ruthlessly advocate constantly um <laughs> often people haven't heard of of um many sides of the things we we deal with day to day until someone is in front of them telling them their lived experience um and for me that's a, that's a big part of it is just getting to do that every day and putting a life that is right for me and year by year learning exactly how to make that better and better and better you know I really love that. I love how you started that by creating a path, creating a new normal, creating your normal, because I think that's such a positive way to think about it. But it makes so much sense. I think so much of the time we, and, you know, quite rightly in a way, we focus on the barriers and sort of, you know, following the social model of disability. We know that that is what disables us but I really loved the positivity in you saying like figuring out what works for you figuring out what life you want and how to go about living that and I I think you know talking about lived experiences and sharing that I you know sort of briefly alluded to this before we started recording but that's one of the things that I love the most about doing this podcast and learning about different people and different disabilities because I you know will be really honest I didn't know that your purple tinted glasses were because of an impairment I thought she is just rocking that Y2K <laughs> look and I love it um as yeah, I, gen- I genuinely do but now I know about that as a way to manage that impairment or to make things more you know accessible Mm -hmm. to you so I think that's so valuable I mean thank you for teaching me that (laughs) no problem it is a niche one it's not very uh known or or that commonly discussed like other realms of neurodiversity um it was a it was a journey in itself honestly finding out about how I process light um so I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until my a-levels um and once I had some help at university for the first time which was just world-changing um I had a dyslexia coach who really somehow dragged me through that degree incredibly grateful for her um she also was an Erlen representative and was kind of picking up on a few things from me and um pushed me to encourage me to go get a screening and look into it and I'll never forget the first day that I put on the right shade of tinted lenses. Um, it's a fascinating process. So it's about how you process light, really. Um, it can really impact your coordination. Obviously, your ability to read, that's pretty standard in the dyslexia realm. The way I kind of explain it is 
how some dyslexic people find it helpful to read off tinted paper. And Erlin syndrome is kind of like like that, but on a lot of steroids. So it's not just paper, it's everything really. If I can block out that glare, that visual stress, it, it just makes everything so much easier. Um, and now that I I have my right tint, um, and like this color is actually a makeup of like four different, slightly different colors on top of each other. It's so fascinating. They bring a big briefcase full of all of these different color lenses and they'd all have the slightest difference. And in the assessment, you sit there and they're like, okay, hold these up to your eyes. We're going to read in artificial light. We're going to read in natural light. Look at the sun. How long does your eyes take to process? Look at that shadow down there under that desk. Can you tell me what's there? Um, or like walk around and see how it feels. And it's one of the most exhausting things I do every two years is have that assessment. <laughs> but um, I will always remember in my my second year university house where I got I got the right lenses and I put them on and my assessor was like, walk around, see how they feel, you know? And for the first time in my life, I actually understood the depth of a staircase. So I always knew that I had to move my legs in a certain way to get up to a second floor of a building, but I never really understood why or like where my foot needed to go. But once I had just like the, the sheer reduction in visual stress, like I was able to really understand depth of my surroundings and I could really get it and I yeah Erlen was a massive life changer that one for sure um but I'll never forget that just <laughs> it was really baffling um but it is a niche one that does people don't know about a lot and I do get a lot of uh people thinking it's a aesthetic choice and honestly I, w- I would wear them as an aesthetic choice because I love pink and I love purple um, and I've only recently realized that that's probably because it's the least painful color for me to look at. So naturally, I surround myself in it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Which makes sense when you piece it all together. Um, yeah, my my glasses are kind of a, a distinctive feature. And honestly, I used to really dislike them because for a few years after my head injury, my migraine was so severe. Um, and that intertwines with Erlin and the, you know, the light you want to reduce. So my glasses used to be like a really dark, I'd have, I'd have a, a pink color for environments where I could control my lighting so that I could, I could read and such. But most of the time I wore these really dark gray lenses. Um, and to me, they look like sunglasses and turns out I'm autistic. Um, so I was always very hyper aware of how people were perceiving them. And I had this rule in my head that wearing sunglasses inside is rude, you know? So I'd always feel like I'm wearing these and people are going to think that I don't want to be here or I'm hungover or something like that. But really, my brain just can't process light very well. Um, So I'm, I'm a lot happier with them these days. But that in part is because I feel like it doesn't like I'm wearing sunglasses and I don't feel like I'm being as rude unintentionally. I think that that's so interesting though. And I feel really, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it makes me, it makes me feel a bit sad in a way that you thought, you know, people would be judging you, but I fully understand why you thought that, but that, you know, those were the glasses that you needed at that Mm. time to be able to 
you know, just get about your daily life. And for anyone to sort of think badly of you because that, you know, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because you, you know, if you do need to go off or have a quiet moment, or sometimes for me, if I need to, you know, leave a video call in the middle of it because I need to go and do something medical, you know, people can perceive Mm -hmm. things in in different ways and you really don't want it to come across that way but you equally don't want to tell everyone all of your medical history all of the time yeah definitely it's it's a balance you know and these days I've somehow managed to turn all of this into a career where I get to just talk about it all and that is helpful for people somehow so um I'm running with it (laughs) and I I do explain why they're purple and why when I share my screen it's definitely purple to other people. Um, and some days I'll be more unapologetic about that than others. Some days I'll turn the tint down really low just so that people don't ask, so that I don't have to explain it. Because it's not a quick one. It's not a quick one, Erlen syndrome. Um, so some days I'll, I'll have it on really low. And then immediately, as soon as I hang up, the tint will whack straight back up and it will be a really intense purple. And my whole brain just goes, ah. Oh, um but I'm yeah I'm learning to just embrace it in in that way uh having making this job for myself has helped for sure um Mm. yeah that it's it's good and you know I use a crutch every day as well and that introducing using a walking aid isn't a small task or decision for people to make um and whilst I'm not in the office anymore uh people don't see that day to day they only really see the purple classes um but it's, it's different when you're in your own environment as well isn't it I'm so much happier working from home like, oh, oh my god I love too. it so much I've got my cats with me <laughs> my wife bringing me lovely drinks like I'm I'm so fortunate um and I don't know how I ever coped with an office environment honestly isn't that interesting though and I have had the exact same thought so many times about how much easier it is at home and it's something that I've talked to a lot of other disabled people about and Mm -hmm. sort of having your own setup exactly how you want it at home is really invaluable but I think it's interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic I know I was just dying to get back into the workplace Mm -hmm. trying dying to get back into the office and have that socialization which I mean don't get me wrong I do still miss to an extent but I think it doesn't for me outweigh the benefits that working from home gives and Mm -hmm. it sounds like you have an amazing setup at home but I'm very fortunate in that it works for me um I mean at the beginning I remember there was a day or so where they said okay vulnerable people you're staying inside for 12 12 weeks and no one else was included in that. And I remember going to the office after hours and picking up my my laptop and things that I need to work at home. So like I had a document slave on a specific adapter keyboard and those bits. So I went and collected them and 
I'll always remember just how like sad it was because I just felt like I would be the only one working from home and everyone else would be roaming free, you know, coming into the office, doing all their things. And then a, a day and a half later, no, everyone had to get home and stay home, um, which which changed it a bit, being in it all together. But as, as we um, got used to that, yeah, I've really found it so valuable. I don't know if I'd be able to have got this job or like be able to lead this to the, the the passion I have for it and the determination and just how much I give myself to it I don't think I could have done that in an office because so much of my energy just went to um sitting upright in a chair <laughs> and being yeah. prepared for someone to just speak to you at any point and all of these things um whereas now like my environment I have a chest full of a thousand different fidget toys next to my desk and like there's just so much to to touch and play with all around me and I don't have to worry about the click clacking of anything or how I'm stimming um or any of it it's been so freeing so freeing um but I'm really lucky I know that that's not everyone's circumstances but for me knowing that my bed is the other side of the wall behind me I don't have to when I'm when I'm crashing out in terms of ME and fatigue, I don't have to know when I need to get up and go to the medical room, which is also mm-hmm. a prayer room and a breastfeeding room. So by the time you get down there, you don't even know if it's going to be available. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about navigating down to that room that might be available anymore. My own bed is meters from me. Um, and that just stripped back so many layers, you know, of just being aware of your surroundings and how you're doing and if you're going to be able to hold your own head up for much longer like all of those thoughts that took up a lot of my work days and I had to work in an office from home um for me it's been world changing honestly and who doesn't like to present without their notes directly in front of them mm. you know I, yeah. I used to have to sit I sat down when I present before and I'd be like swaying back and forth on the chair just because like I needed that motion um and now I just don't even have to explain why I'm not standing up to present you know just little things like that no it'd be weird if you did I don't know how I would I (laughs) can't imagine it anymore um yeah no it's it's very convenient it works for me and I'm great I have to say what a strange combination of uses that that room in your (laughs) office had breastfeeding prayer room and a medical room yes what an interesting combination. Yeah, it was a, it's a pretty big building. They've changed it since to their to their credit. They've recently like broken them out into be more things, but there's a mixture of like I'm actively having a migraine and my my vision is strobing, but someone is knocking on the door and, and needs it for their prayer space. And I respect that so much and I want to give that to them. But also, like I can't open one of my eyes and I'm trying to find where the door handle is. <laughs> like it 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 wasn't easiest and <laughs> this is embarrassing in a previous workplace um there wasn't any medical room or anything like that and um when I had a migraine I used to have to lie down under the table in the boardroom because it was the darkest place in the office which sounds so tragic and it oh, was no it's it sad because that was what you had to do to manage but that does make me sad and I can just imagine if just your CEO accidentally strolled in at that moment, how you would start explaining that and just go, no, I'm not, you know, slacking off 
or something. It's it's actually yeah. because I really need to be here. Yeah, I check the uh, check the availability on Outlook and book it, and then just like go and be in a dark place, uh, going through a medication cycle. Ah, oh, yes, those years it all feels like a very long time ago now. Um, but yeah, I think working from home is good for me. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And I wanted to go back to what you said about how you've sort of made this career for Mm. yourself and sort of your career now focuses around disability and it focuses a lot around some of the disabilities and impairments and conditions that you have but Mm. it sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong but most of your diagnoses were later in life so what was that journey from what is it that you wanted to do as a career and how did you end up here? Okay yeah so it it did all come later in life um I've listened to the first season and everyone talks about you know their role models as children and and their their experience as children and I was um none of this really either kicked off in terms of chronic illness or was picked up until uh 17 and then everything kind of all happened at once oh rough time um but I'm on the other side now basically I think in the past um I I knew media was a realm that fascinated me I can spend hours doing a deep dive and preparing this info dump for my wife (laughs) I'll like go deep into a topic and then after we've had dinner I'll just like show her everything so I I have this capacity for media something around media um, especially sociology around the media I knew something that was like my most significant interest um, I didn't know what it was going to turn out like I didn't know what I'd end up doing and after during university I worked for GIFGAF so I used to do a lot of video content for them and community manager stuff so I don't know if it's still the case, but until recently, if you ran out of data on GIFGAF and you got a text about it, there would be a link and that link would be my face telling you how to add more data to your plan. Oh my God. (laughs) If someone remembers that, please put it in the comment of this episode. (sighs) Yeah. Um, There's all kinds of tutorial videos, phone reviews, all kinds of stuff around for GIFGAF stuff. Um, I, I Hopefully it's not still used, but... I did all kinds of stuff. So that was community management. And I I found that really fascinating as, as a way that people engage online, but under like a specific purpose. Um, I did a research project in a dissertation on GIFGAF's business model. Um, and again, it's, it's sociology of the media. So I was interested in, in that kind of realm. I knew I wanted to do something like niche so that I could just like really get into it. And I found that now and I'm happy. Um, but I kind of fell from that into website work because after a while, recording the same scripts, editing yourself, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't do much for me. It wasn't the best use of my time, um, how often I had to look at my own face. So I, I moved into more website work and then did that for a while. Um, fun fact, I built the website for the Dyson hairdryer. That Did was a contract. You? Yeah, we were in a team and we we made a bunch of different versions of different markets because they launched like 40 different 
territories or countries on the mm. same day for the first time so we had to remake the website for those versions and make sure it was all because you know there's different characters some some languages are much much longer or shorter mm. or completely different characters and you had to adjust the design to fit that so yeah that was a that was a brief contract that I did so I, I fell into website work and a lot of that was contracting <laughs> and contracting was not good for me um so you have a day rate and you turn up and you do the thing and uh, there's just this culture with it of trying to bank hours, you know, pushing myself way too hard, way too hard. And I'm um, kind of like competing with myself on how much I could, you know, get done in the time. And oh, as, we've, as this, we've all been there. Yeah. Obviously, there's, there's no sick pay or annual leave. So you really, you have to make a very conscious decision to forfeit income for any respite, anything like that. Um, and uh, yeah, it wasn't ideal. So a big goal was to just end up in a permanent position somewhere where I didn't feel like I needed to prove myself so intensely every day. Um, and I found that with my current employer and, um, I think I'm, I'm making it worth it. I'd like to think that I'm a good hire. <laughs> I very much appreciate annual leave. Um, and yeah, it's, it's nice to stay in one place because, contracting is not compatible when you're chronically ill it's just not um and yeah naturally I went from I did Lloyd's like I said that was going to be accessibility specific website work but didn't end up being accessibility specific um continued in website work and then ended up at my current place and in the interview I mentioned accessibility and they were like oh we like that let's let's hear more about that and yeah brought me in and just gave me this support and agency to go and do my thing and you know three years down the line I now have several millions in budget I have a director sponsor um I'm getting a team very soon we changed the font the entire brand's font um because it wasn't very accessible um I've done all kinds of stuff you know we redid a lot of the brand foundations to to really center around accessibility um just just yeah all of it really and just optimize it all and make it as useful as possible and they've all been so respectful around that and welcoming I I face very little challenge which is a miracle in a big organization um but yeah I just I bring a lot of myself to it and maybe that helps I'm not sure but it works um and I just, I just believe that everyone should be able to check their pension. Really? Like that's, that's my ultimate goal every day. Mm. When you work for a company, you don't choose who provides your pension. You go along with it. And that means you should, regardless of your circumstances, like you didn't choose to engage with this company. You're just working and you want to save up so that you can retire one day. <laughs> and everyone should be able to check in with their pension, you know? And that's my like main drive every day and how I talk about it. It's just like Yeah. But everyone deserves that. That's so perfectly put though, because I think when we talk about accessibility and in particularly digital accessibility, we I think a lot of people don't understand that these are very basic daily interactions that you have online that some people are just completely shut out from doing because of something that could be changed and you know my 
content lead hat on is saying, oh, my God, remind me to ask you to write an article about your company changing their font to be more accessible. Because as you know, you know, I work with businesses to become more accessible and inclusive for mm-hmm. disabled people and branding comes up so much in that, you know, oh, well, this is our brand color. This is our brand font. And mm-hmm. it's even though it's inaccessible, we can't change it because it's the core branding. And I think, well, first of all, maybe you should have checked before <laughs> you designed it that way. But also, is it going to be the end of the world if you use a mm-hmm. slightly different color or a slightly different font? But for branding and marketing and creative teams, it seems to be the end of their world. But I just think that that's so incredible that your company has done something so I don't know whether it's a big or small because it's kind of both yeah I I see that so the way I approach it like if you weren't aware of these things before you just didn't have the lived experience and you didn't know and that's okay um but let's work together to improve it uh ultimately so that's the kind of approach I take you know like yeah this rebrand was done and there wasn't really any guidance about the combinations of colors and how the combinations are used because that's more about like con- color contrast and once you're aware of it you see it absolutely everywhere but um you know there, there wasn't guidelines around that specifically because the agency that did the rebrand they didn't know of or value accessibility so when I came in it's not even a case of let's actually let's change this color slightly so it's more accessible really it's just let's change how we use it slightly. You know, there was this one combination which became quite core to the brand. Um, from It was white and this, this other color um, that really, so cont- real quick, um, if I simplify it majorly, you can uh, quantify a ratio from a color combination and then that has a, a pass and fail level, right? And this beloved combination was far below so the the bar is like four and a half to one and this combination is like 1.17 to one so it did did not pass and it was not near passing you know uh but instead of saying let's not use this color we were given the space to really reapproach the branding for the better and now it's like okay instead of this beloved color in white Let's just use this beloved color in navy because then yeah. the contrast ratio is like nine point something. It's brilliant. Like, you know, there is, there's change and there's socialization um, and ways of doing stuff historically. You know, people want to make things that look aesthetically beautiful to them, um, especially if that's the way they've always been able to do it. Um, and I get that. I really do. Um, I just want every piece of our content to be equally consumable by anyone that could read it, you know, and it it might seem like a small number of people, but it's really, really not. And you mentioned like the purple pound earlier, like I spend my days like promoting and justifying and going through this business case um, that I could reel off in my sleep, but with the same amount of passion. uh, Yeah. It is, it's a lot to to navigate, but yeah, Yeah. it's off to my employer. They, they really have just, listened honestly and I couldn't I couldn't ask for more than that 
the font mm. is fascinating. Um, was a, we, the font we changed to is very similar, um, but just significantly more readable. They put out some comms and had a lot of feedback about the font just not being readable. And we went to um, Digital Accessibility Centre, DAC in Wales. They are brilliant. Um, did some focus groups with them around the font we currently use and the potential fonts we could switch to using um, and really valued those voices and, and, you know, got them out there, both of real clients and people with access needs. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's still such a, like you said, it sounds so big, but it's also so small. But the weight of that, to be able to say that we changed the whole font is significant. I yeah, It's well, just unfortunate that the mm. original one was so thin. I had people contact me saying, why aren't you printing your materials with black ink? You have you're a financial services company. You have the money. Like you don't need to save money in this way by using gray ink. Oh my God. That's funny. It wasn't that though. Like the, it was printed in black, but the font was so thin that it looked gray and you can't explain that to people, you know, but yeah, props. We took that on board and, and changed everything. (laughs) Um, that's the kind of perspective, you know, and I want to bridge that in between people just like, I just want to read this content. Like, I just want to know what shares to pay attention to that are coming up. Like, I, I want to read this news article. Um, but yeah, it, the font was so thin that they thought we didn't print it in black. You know, those, bridging that gap yeah. and telling those stories. Um, I'm fortunate to do it for sure. I love that the people thought that a huge financial <laughs> institution couldn't possibly afford ink yeah I think for for people you might be thinking about like color contrast and I mean for me it was like very barely but kind of in the world of accessibility I just sort of want to contextualize it for people who don't really know much about it in terms of color contrast and I suppose the way that I think about about it is if you are on a website and there is a background color of maybe like a teal, like a pale teal, and then they have white font, like I think everyone can think, oh, that's that's quite difficult to read. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think we mean by a very poor color contrast, where the text is not different enough from the background color then that makes it difficult to read. And there are accessibility standards, which, as you say, have a ratio of what that difference needs to be. And sort of the the standard, I mean, I and correct me if I'm wrong, but the easiest I'm imagining is black and white because Mm -hmm. they're so different. But I know a lot of companies also tend to use red, white, and blue for their color. sort of their brand colors. But if you look at those three colors, they're also very different. So if you, we you know, if you think of certain supermarkets, for, I'm, I'm going to say Tesco, for example, I've had um, Jason from Tesco on the podcast. So I think it's fair to say that I like Tesco, but their colors are red, white, and blue. So they're 
printed materials or their visual materials that use those colors pass a good accessibility standard because those colors are different. Um, so I just wanted to give a little bit of like context for people who are thinking, well, what does that look like? And, you know, I think, like I said, everyone can remember an example of where they're on possibly an, an artsy or really aesthetic website and it's actually really difficult to read mm-hmm. and you end up just giving up which brings me to the purple pound and the click away pound and I want to get your thoughts on it but for the people who don't know what it is I'm sure we've talked about the purple pound on this podcast but for people who don't know what that is it is the spending potential of disabled people and families with a disabled person in their household in the UK. And it's some astronomically mm-hmm. high figure. I can't remember it off the I, top of my head, but you probably do. <laughs> so what? I've actually presented on this earlier today. I did a presentation to Bristol Quality Network, um, lots of different charities and local organisations. And I mentioned the Purple Pound and also some statistics from the Clickaway Pound. So that big figure, the potential or the spending power, is how they phrase it, disabled households in the UK per annum is £279 billion. It's a lot and of money. If anyone's thinking, did you say billion, not million? Yes, you did say billion. Mm-hmm. And that's so... It's bonkers to me, but it makes so much sense. But I really want to get you to explain the click away pound. If you don't mind, I realize I'm putting it to work here. No, I love the click away pound. It's one of the first resources I I found way back when. Um, It is a very big survey of... um, many different disabled peoples with various access needs, experience, digital experiences online. Um, and they've done it two years. They've done like two separate rounds and have compared it all. But there are some some insights that come from that. It just gives such a voice. Like there's one, there's two that I quote constantly, um, which is all around loyalty and the loyalty of a, like a disabled user once they find something that works for them they are not going to deviate. They're not going to try something else for fun. Like we, that's something working for us or being able to engage with something isn't a guaranteed experience. Oh, so yeah. once you know it works for you, like I could talk about this for a whole other hour. Like I could start a podcast on Oxo Good Grips as a I think range. you should. You should do, but carry on. <laughs> I love Oxo Good Grips. And if there is a reason for me to buy something from that range, I'm going to do it. Um, but loyalty, that's the point of it. So so 81% of people, um, disabled users, people with access needs, will prioritize a more accessible service over competitive pricing because it works for us. And we know that, and you kind of give up the privilege of getting to shop around and get the best deal just for being able to do something. Um, yeah. You know, that that's huge. That, that's That's a lot of loyalty, you know, regardless of what can be considered one of the most important factors that you're looking for when you're making a decision um and then the other one is 86 percent um would spend more if there were fewer access barriers that one as well like 
we we want to engage with you. We have we have the funds. We want we want to do this, but we can't because there's unnecessary barriers. Like I can't navigate the form that lets me put in my card details. Therefore, I can't pay for the basket that I've spent ages putting together. All all of these things. Um, there's a there's a thousand other very interesting statistics from that. The click away pound. Very mm. recommend that you look up. It was one of the first things that like lit this fire you can tell I'm getting excited about it like talking at a thousand miles an hour um but that's what it's like when you get on a call to me about accessibility no I I'm just as like impassioned about this as you are and it really came up when I started working at scope in consumer affairs policy because I knew as a disabled person myself that I was a I was this type of consumer i mean it's something that you know there's the expression if you have to ask the price you can't afford it but i think for disabled people as you just so perfectly put we will spend more if it means that you know we are faced with less barriers and that we and we're more loyal to brands or to companies that make a good experience for us. And I am completely guilty of that. I will go back to a company if I know that they're accessible. And, you know, I think that another way to think of it is if you're going out somewhere to eat and as a wheelchair user, I might go on their website and see if they have any access information on the website. And if they don't have it, I'm going to assume that they haven't thought about it mm-hmm. and that they probably aren't accessible. And I'm less likely to spend my time calling them to find out. And when I say step free and they sort of say, oh, we are, but there's one step to get up to the toilet. You're like, okay, not step free then. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So if mm-hmm. I know a restaurant that is step free, but they have had it on their website, I'm going to keep going back there because that's a much easier and less time-consuming experience Mm -hmm. for me. And I think that it's just so fascinating that businesses aren't more aware and acting on this Mm -hmm. more because to make a decision, like we were talking about with color contrast or with font, is something so simple but can tap into that huge spending power of disabled people and their families why would you not do it yeah that that's how I approach it like why would you not if if you there are there are definitely some myths around accessibility that you know accessible content is boring or um you know, hard to brand it or uh, restrictive. And really, I find that it's not. You You just need to have a little more awareness or like some resources that help encourage certain usages of color, for example. But even if that's the case, you know, the do you not want your audience to read your content? It, it just, I feel like it only improves what you put out. I, I, 
I mean, I'm biased. I live for this stuff. Like, I love it. <laughs> so I'm not exactly subjective on this. But why wouldn't you want to make something more fit for purpose, accessible to more people, usable, all of this? Um, one thing that came up when you were talking then is how intensely I believe that disabled people also deserve the choice of choosing what avenue or method they engage with a company in. Um, you know, I, I don't want to have to phone you if I don't like phone calls. If I want to do it on an app, I want to do it on the app, you know? Yeah, it's it's having those same avenues as everyone else. I mean, when you were talking just then about phone calls, I mean, the first thing I thought was who in our generation likes <laughs> making phone calls? Right. But from an access perspective, if that is difficult or daunting for you, then you're really going to be put off yeah. going to that company or that service provider, whatever it might be, and therefore giving them your money. Yeah, definitely. I also find um, like when you... You look at digital accessibility quite naturally. You end up looking at the end-to-end process because you can't just make an accessible app and be like, there, I've done it. We're good now. First of all, never truly ends. It's a involving, like a continuous uh, thing to manage. I, I love managing it, but anyway. <laughs> the, oh no, I forgot. I forgot what I was saying. Um, about digital accessibility and how it's a constant process it's never fully done Mm. but when you think that you've made an app or you've made a website or something and say oh it's accessible that's that's the end of it yes sorry it's the bigger the the one before that this is one of I I think it's gone don't worry don't worry about it sorry apologies um this also happens when I get so into things <laughs> the wider picture can just leave can just leave um again, no, uh, that, yeah uh, absolutely fine but what I wanted to come back to is so if someone is listening to this and they're thinking oh did you remember it I did remember it Okay, go for it. Thank you so much. Um, End-to-end processes. So you can you can make an accessible app, but if one of the things, one of the ways you complete a journey or a process is to send a letter or to phone somewhere, if your customer service staff don't know about things like relay services, where you could have an interpreter just to define. where someone who needs it will will use an interpreter who will speak to the agent on the phone. Um, so often this could be someone who is deaf or um, any of those related needs and can't do the phone call directly for any reason. Um, if you don't have staff that know what that is, sometimes that interpreter is electronic voice. It's not it's not just a human voice. So if you pick up a phone and someone's trying to log on, like enter access their account, and it sounds like a scam, if your staff don't know about this service and, wow. and why it exists, you're gonna if you rely on that service and you need to phone them, that's a major barrier. 
So it, it's it's holistic. It can't just be the app. You know, it's a, it's a much bigger picture. Um, and I think it will keep me busy for many years. But I like that. <laughs> but it's, it's very much end to end. Like you, mm. you can't just do one bit. It's got to be the whole the whole piece because who doesn't only use one specific part of a company's surfaces you know it's a it's a bigger picture it's always about that end-to-end journey that makes so much sense now that you say it and you know to my lack of knowledge I didn't fully understand what a relay service was but now when you've described it I I don't I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but not proper, like not fully. Um, but I spent a year after I contracted the spine flu when I wasn't able to speak. And I am now thinking, man, I wish I knew that that service was a thing. Maybe, maybe it wasn't back in what, 2009. Um, but if it was, that would have been pretty helpful. And that's, you know, it's a type of restriction, limitation whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. that isn't restricted to the deaf or hard of hearing community. So, you know, again, this is something that we could really bang on and on about, but accessibility measures benefit so many more people than oh, yeah. you think. So many more people than the impairment or disability that you think it's for. So mm-hmm. please do it. And... <laughs> I want to ask you for anyone who's listening to this that may be now looking at the company that they work for and wondering about their accessibility, you know, because they've heard a lot about color contrast and font and now communication methods. What is something that you would advise them to do to maybe act on something? Love that. Um, I would say... It does kind of depend on the size of your organization um, and where you work in that organization. But there are many ways to start. So, you know, if you work in operations, you can make sure that the the process for organizing alternative formats of investment reports or or paperwork is um, streamlined, but is also known widely and um has a good range of different options. Um, in my company, it's not just audio file or large print. It's also different pastel tinted paper because I really wanted that to be an option and I really pushed for it. Um, you know, that you could do that within operations. If you work in internal comms, like read up on um, quick wins, you know, accessibility features within Outlook and PowerPoint and transcripts and and captions and the difference between subtitles, which is just the audio and closed captioning, which is all sounds, um, you know, in, in where you sit, you can, there are so many things online. I've never had any formal training. Everything I learned was from Googling, um, reading articles, watching YouTube videos, um, understanding, having some fun and just trying to navigate around the website using a keyboard exclusively. And, um, you know, learn about things like skip links and just just find pockets of opportunities and and just Google it. Like, dive deep in, um, find other people in your organization that have that interest. Once you do that, you can bond together and you can achieve some things. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, I would say look around you at your the role you're doing. Look for opportunities. 
always be advocating and, and looking out for thinking about different demographics and if this is actually a suitable route for them or how you could support them better. Um, I mean, the developers that I've trained up as accessibility ambassadors, we found some e-learning for them and um, empowered them to, to spread that knowledge further. Depending on the budget you have access to, you know, you could train up a few people and uh, that can be, again, just giving them time to Google and read and watch and play and download a screen reader and and reach out to organizations that amplify disabled voices for testing. There are so many things you can do and you don't need necessarily budget to do it. I didn't have budget for three years. Um, like, <laughs> you can do it. It's all there. The biggest thing is explaining why you need the time to do it. Um, and once you've got that time, the business case almost writes itself, <laughs> honestly. Uh, connect with other people in your company. Someone looks after customer feedback that comes in or the complaints. You want to look for themes in those complaints and get them on board and build a team, even if it's just an informal working group. Um, yeah, just find other people that care about it and want to investigate and work on it, I'd say. And Google is everything. Well, Thank you so, so, so much, Zoe, for coming on the podcast and talking to us about accessibility and about you teaching me about your various conditions, because I've certainly learned so, so much. And yeah, I just am so thrilled that we've been able to have a proper conversation after months of like digital communication so yeah thank you so much and awesome yeah thank you so much for having me like uh so thrilled to be here um and i'm sure we'll we'll keep working together in the future absolutely thank you so much for listening to this episode of the wheelchair activist with the amazing zoe portlock i enjoyed that conversation so much and i learned so much and i really really hope that you have too. I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe set up for this podcast. We are 100% committed to accessibility here at The Wheelchair Activist, and we want to make sure that every bit of content is inclusive and accessible to all. Every donation allows us to continue doing this work, which includes captioning each and every episode and making it available on YouTube. Thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated so far and has allowed us to continue making this amazing podcast. Please give this podcast a share far and wide so everyone can enjoy the amazing content. This podcast has been hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, produced by me and Isabel Anderson, and edited by Joe Tapper. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.